You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight, Be'ezra Sashem, we're going to be continuing in the story of the Shiva HaKabtsanim, the seven beggars that Rabbi Nachman told over in 1809 on Parsha Lel Shabbos, towards the end of his life, when he was struggling with his breathing, when he was suffering from the disease that ultimately brought about the first gemira, the first completion of Rabbi Nachman's Avoida, like we said, I will complete, and then I will continue to complete, even after completion. I will be victorious, and then I will be victorious even over the concept of victory itself, to show that even that which appears to be a loss is also part of victory. And when Rabbi Nachman started telling this tale, which he introduced with the promise of how once upon a time they were joyous from within Marishchaira, from within despondency itself, from within a loss of hope. So Rabbi Nachman's entire story, the entire narrative framework that he's giving over to us in these Sipori Maisios, Meshanim Kanmonios, are a lesson or an Eitzah, a simple suggestion as to how a person can find Simcha at the heart of Marishchaira, how a person can find within the bitterness itself, within the despondency itself, the panemius of simcha, the panemius of the joy that emerges in spite of all of the reasons not to have joy. Now, what we started with was the opening narrative, that there was a king who wanted to give over kingship to his son in the lifetime of the king, something unique, offering responsibility and choice to the prince himself. But in order for the prince to become king in the lifetime of the king, there's a necessary concealment of the kingship of the true king. There's a necessary diminution or withdrawal or a concealment of the king's presence. And again, the king demands of his son, he says, the only way that you can be king is if you remain happy. Why must you remain happy? Because you're going to fall away from kingship. You will lose what you had. The transiency of things will become very clear in your eyes. And the important thing is not to hold on to your kingship, is not to hold on to your power, is not to hold on to the belief that you're in control of everything, but rather to find joy even in the descent away from kingship, even in the descent away from your power, from your awareness that you're in control or you're in charge. I'm not interested if you could stay joyous then. I'm interested, says the king, if you could stay joyous even as you fall away from Malchus. And Ibn Ahmed tells us that as the story continues, the true king passes away, and the prince who became king in the lifetime of his father 
begins to lose himself, begins to find himself carried away by the heresy of the world, by the concealment of the world, by the confusion of the world, by the hakiros and the intellectual rationalizations of the things that go bump in the night. And because this king, who received the kingship in the lifetime of the king, had goodness within his heart, there were moments of introspection, there were moments when the world began to swirl and turn and the waters came up to the neck where he would say, hey, Hanani ba'olam, where am I in the world? Where am I? Moments of introspection, moments of the true recognition that yes, I've lost power. I've descended away from Malchus, but nevertheless, I can still be happy. But as Rabbi Nachman ends the first shlav of the narrative framing of the story of the seven beggars, we're told that ultimately the kfira, the heresy, the denial, the sadness, the marishchaira, the embitterment, the anxiety, overtook those moments of hechanani ba'olam. And they didn't give room for those moments to grow. And the king found himself stuck in the despondency in the pits. And tonight, Bez Ras Hashem, we're going to move on to the second stage of the narrative introduction. And here, Rabbi Nachman tells us, without introduction, without recourse to knowing exactly what happened. This is something similar that you find even in Lakuta Maharan, that when Rabbi Nassim is recording the teachings of Rabbi Nachman, very often the teachings open up with Amar, and he answered and he said, implying the fact that the teaching itself was an answer to some sort of question, Anav Amar. That Rabbeinu Sha'ag Bekol Gadol Anav Amar. Rabbeinu Rabbi Nachman screamed at the top of his lungs and he answered and he said, but the question is, what is the question that Rabbi Nachman is coming to answer here? Or when Rabbi Nachman says, Da, you should know this. Very often when a person reads that, it's based on a previous statement. And you should know that what I just said means this. But Rabbi Nachman very often opens up his teachings with the proclamation of Veda and no. As if to say that this teaching that I'm offering you, these ideas, these etzos that I'm offering you, emerge from someplace far beyond where they appear to start. That they're rooted in the loftiest heights of where things can be rooted. And that unasked question that Rabbi Nachman is coming to answer, when Rabbi Nassim opens up his teachings with Anav Amar, perhaps is coming to say that these teachings are answers to any question that a person might have. It's not a particular question that they're coming to answer, but rather anava amar means that any question that you might be asking at this particular moment, any existential quandary or antinomy that assaults the menuchas hanefesh of an individual, bein beruchani, bein begashmi, bein beprati, bein beklali, these teachings are a tikkun klali, a general rectification. They're a medication that work for anything. They're not specific prescriptions for particular problems. They're general prescriptions for all problems. And therefore, there's no need to offer the preliminary questions that are being asked. But rather, it's enough to just say, anava amar. And Rabbi Nachman uses that same hermeneutical device as he enters us and draws us into the second stage of the story, the dream within the dream, falling further and further into the 
fantasy world of imagination that Rabbi Nachman is attempting to open up for us through the tales of ancient days, to wake us up out of our unconsciousness, to wake us up out of our slumber. And Sir Ben Achman says, and the day came to pass and there was a flight from a certain country. What happened to cause this catastrophe? What trauma took place? What destruction happened? What catastrophe destroyed the order of things? We don't know. It's not real. It's a story. Because ultimately it doesn't make a difference what the proper nouns applied to the circumstances are. There was chaos. There was confusion. There was disruption. There was upheaval. There was catastrophe, there was shvira, there was constriction, there was a shattering of the previous order. There was an unspecified event that took place, that which happened. As the Ishbitzer Tzadikim point out, by the Akedah, the parsha of the Akedah opens up with the acharei hadavarim ha'ele, and after these things took place. And it's only the Meforshim who tell us what the Torah is referring to. But in the Torah itself, it's the sense of a sense of afterwardness. That something has happened, something big, something catastrophic, something that opens the scene for a potentially new order took place. And each of us are capable of applying our own personal situated narrative to exactly what it is that forced this country to run away. But the day came to pass that there was a flight in a certain country. Everybody fled. And as they were fleeing, as they were running away from whatever catastrophic disaster had taken place, as they were moving away from whatever it is that pushed them out of their comfort zone, they passed through a forest. And as this country, as this town, as these people, the people perhaps of the king that we discussed yesterday or two days ago, or perhaps it's an entirely separate story, a story within a story. But as they're processing and running through the forest itself, they lost two children there, a male child and a female child. One family lost a male child and one family lost a female child. And they were still little children or four or five years old. And they didn't have anything to eat. And they screamed and they cried because they had nothing to eat. The catastrophe happens. That which disrupts the order of things takes place. And in its wake and in its trace, there is a bewilderment, there is a chaos, and ultimately two young children are lost. A male child and a female child. Now parenthetically, again, my friend Micah might not like this, but when Rabbi Nachman says they were four or five years old, to put in brackets the fact that for the Arizal and for the Mikubalim, the question between four or five it's not simply a question of quantity, but it's a qualitative question. Four represents the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the four letters of the Tetragrammaton, the Yud, K, the Vav, and the K, representing the entirety of existence from its origins down to its end, of Saif Maseh B'Machshav 
But according to the Kabbalim, there's a fifth level of the Shem Havaya as well. That even though it's only four letters, which are representative of four worlds, of four parts of the self, all of which are susceptible to diminishment and pollution, yet the point of the Yud, the Kutsa Shal Yud, is the fifth part, the fifth level that is attached to the four levels. That fifth level, that Yechida, that singular point, is different than the other four. It's different than the other parts that are pollutable or that are susceptible to destruction. The fifth part is above time, above our conception of the order of things. So it could be, perhaps, that Rabbi Nachman here, in conveying the story when he chose to use the words four or five years old, he's implying that there's a distinction in which how we read the story is going to change. If we read it from the lens of four, which is susceptible to brokenness, or if we allow ourselves to read the story from the lens of the letter, the number five, which opens us up to the vistas of that which is above pollution, that which is above failure, that which is above brokenness. Now these children, these innocent children, these vulnerable children, these children of but four or five find themselves lost in a forest. A forest, the Ya'ar, is a place of darkness, a place of concealment, a place of confusion and bewilderment, a place where the shadows that are cast by the intertwined trees prevent any clearing of light to shine itself so that a path emerges. Narratively speaking, the forest brings to mind the things that go bump in the night, the frightening forces of negativity that assault the person psychologically, emotionally, physically. Now it's one thing to walk in a forest in a situated place with one's parents, with one's older generations, with the wisdom of what comes next. It's another thing entirely to be lost and orphaned in a forest, to be alone without any direction, without anybody saying what exactly should be done next. And not only were they alone in the forest, but they had nothing to eat. There was a desire, there was a pain, there was existential crisis, there was a danger. And the only thing the children knew how to do the only thing these two lost children, this lost boy and this lost girl knew how to do was to scream and cry out because they had nothing to eat. The hunger itself is what gave birth to the cry. The awareness of lack, the awareness of destitution, the awareness of powerlessness, the awareness of having no control whatsoever as to what will happen next, is what gives birth to the cry and the scream. That only the threat of starvation, only the threat of being stuck in the thicket and the overgrow of the forest is what enables these children to cry out. Who are they crying out to? They have no idea. But the lack and the sense of deficiency and the existential danger of that lostness 
provokes a cry that emerges from the depth of these two children. Meanwhile, there came upon them a beggar going along with his sacks, carrying bread in them, and these children started to nudge him and huddle after him. He gave them bread and they ate. And he asks them, where are you from? Meheichan ba'atem. Again, reminiscent of the question that the king who accepted kingship in the lifetime of the king asked, Heichan ani ba'olam. Where am I in the world? The beggar asks these same children, where do you come from? How do you find yourself lost in the thicket here? How do you find yourself so bewildered and starving? And the children answered him, we don't know. We don't know. We have no idea how we got here. We have no idea what the catastrophe was. We have no idea what happened. We know there was a bahala. We know there was confusion. We know there was overwhelmingness. And kachava, we found ourselves lost here. We don't know. We don't know how we arrived here. Our rationality has lost its value. Our ability to trace our steps and the cause and the effect of what we did wrong to arrive at such a moment fails us. We simply don't know how we arrived here. For they were little children. And this beggar started going away from them. And the children asked them to take them with him. In a state of such despondency, in a state of such bewilderment, in a state of such destitution and impoverishment, the children were willing to latch themselves on to anything that would offer them comfort, even a beggar. And the beggar announced, he said to them, I don't want this. I don't want you to follow after me. You shouldn't come with me. Meanwhile, Rabbi Nachman writes, they took a look at this beggar they were talking to, and suddenly it, it became apparent to them that he was blind. This beggar who offered them food, this surprise that offers them comfort in the heart of the forest, in the heart of darkness, is deficient, can't see. The thing that they were placing their trust in failed. It was deficient, it was impoverished. It wouldn't last. And it was a marvel to them, says Rabbi Nachman. Since he was blind, how does he know how to go? And in parentheses, the story says, but in truth, this itself is a novelty, that such a question should occur to them. For they were still young children. However, they were clever children. Therefore, it was a wonder to them. It wasn't only surprising that the children recognized that this person was blind. But the fact that the children even knew how to question where the help was coming from was surprising. The fact that when things go wrong, the fact that when things are bewildering and dark and covered in the thicket, the mere fact that we are capable of questioning, the mere fact that we are aware enough to question how could you be blind and still offer me direction, is in and of itself a chiddush. The emergence of questioning, as the tzaddikim of Ishbitz and Radzin would point out, is in and of itself a proof of the deep-seated faith that there is an order to things. As we've quoted in the past from 
Rav Yehuda Michal Tokachinsky, Skusa Yogan Elenu, the Machaber of the Gesher Achayim, that the well-known Medrash that says that Amr Aminu, Avram Avinu, when he saw a Biro Dolekas, when he saw a lit-up palace, he began to experience the stirrings of theological questioning. And he said, could it be that there's a palace like this without a Balabayas, without an architect? And Rav Tukachinsky points out that most people read this Medrash as claiming that the world appears to be a beautiful mansion that is lit up, which beckons the awareness of the viewer to assume that there's an intelligent design, an intelligent architectural thought that is placed in this. Almost as if to say, how stupid can you be to look at a world that is ordered and structured and to deny godliness? But Rav Tukachinsky says that's the wrong way to read the Medrash, or perhaps there's another way to read the Medrash. That Bira Dolekas could also be a world on fire, a world in flames, a palace in flames, a world that is overcome moment by moment with news and with awareness of struggle that is greater than the previous moment, of difficulties that emerge that the mind could not ponder the previous day. This bewilderment itself, this emergence of questioning that Avram Avinu had when he saw a world on fire was in and of itself enough of a proof that there was a belief deeply entrenched within the heart of Avraham that there's an order to things. That this suffering, this brokenness, this shverkite, these flames must come from someplace. The questioning itself that the young children in the forest asked, the fact that they knew to question the capacity of a blind beggar, is enough of a proof that these children had an awareness. And the story continues. Meanwhile, they took a look, and the beggar was blind. It was a marvel for them. Since he is blind, how does he know how to go? But because the blind beggar didn't want to walk away with them, he said, I will give you a blessing. You should be as old as I am. You should be as old as I am. And he left them more bread and he went away. And the children understood that Hashem was watching over them and that he had sent them a blind beggar to give them food. That even in the heart of the forest, even in the residual effects of the catastrophe, of that which happened, of that which disrupts, the children understood that this arrival of this unexpected guest this deficient creature, this blind individual, was a gift from Hashem. Almost as if the vision that this blind beggar offers to the children is the capacity to see that Hashem is present in their lives, in spite of the fact that they're lost in the heart of the forest. Afterwards, their bread ran out, and again they started screaming for food. After that, it became nighttime and they passed the night there. In the morning, the children still had nothing to eat, so they screamed and they cried. Meanwhile, again, a beggar comes upon them, but this time the beggar is deaf. They started talking to him, and he shows them with his hands and he says to them, I don't hear anything that you're saying. And this beggar also gave them bread to eat and started going away from them 
And they also wanted to take them with him. They also wanted him to take them with him. These children were so desperate for help, they were willing to throw themselves at the feet of a deaf beggar who couldn't even hear them. But he didn't want this. And he offered them a blessing as well, and he said, you should be as I am. And he also left them bread, and he went on his way. In the forest, in the darkness of the forest, there is a night that descends upon the forest. The children, when the blind beggar offers them food, they feel hope. They feel confident that, wow, we're saved. Wow, we're okay. And then, as quickly as the blind beggar emerges, as quickly as this redemptive moment emerges, it dissipates, it goes away, it's lost. And the children lose hope again. And they begin to cry again. And then the deaf beggar emerges and he says, I can offer you something for now, but I don't want you to come with me. But I bless you that you should be like me. Later on, their bread also ran out. And again, they screamed as they did previously. And again, there came to them another beggar. And this beggar was a tongue-tied beggar, a stuttering beggar, a stammering beggar, a beggar who couldn't speak. And they began to speak with him, and he was mumbling his speech, and they didn't know what he was saying. But he knew what they were saying. Only they did not know what he was saying because he was stammering and stuttering. This beggar also gave them bread to eat, and he also started to go on his way as before. And he also blessed them that they should be as he was. And he went away as all of the other beggars did. Again, we're beginning to sense that these children in the forest are experiencing a game of ruts of a shov, of back and forth, of forlornment and despair, and then hope that arises, and then a promise of confidence that arises, only for that confidence to dissipate again for those who offer the gift to escape the scene, once again, leaving the child, those lost children in the forest who found themselves lost after that which happened, to scream and cry again. And then another beggar arrives, offering them sustenance, only to leave again. There's the sense that comfort can't come in one fell swoop. There's a moment of comfort. There are thoughts of comfort. And there are thoughts of despondency that take their place. And then there's more comfort that arises. And then there's more despondency that takes its place. And then again, after that despondency, more hope arises. And a person girds themselves and they say, no, gamzu latova, this is also for the good. Everything is okay. There's a HaKadosh Baruch Hu who's running the world for us, like the children said, after the blind beggar. But as confident as they were in their announcement that they believed deeply in the hashgacha, in the divine providence of godly governance, the next moment they start to cry and to scream again. Left only with these vague blessings from the blind and the deaf and the stammering beggar, that they should be like them. And then after the stammering beggar, there came a beggar with a crooked neck. And it was the same exact thing. Then there came again a beggar who was hunchbacked. Then there was a beggar who had no hands. And then there came a beggar without feet. 
the legless beggar. And each of them came and they gave bread and they blessed them that the children who are lost in the forest should be like them, just as the other beggars. Afterwards, the bread ran out yet again and there was no beggar to emerge. And these children started walking to town towards a town or a settlement until they came to a derech, a way. And they followed that path, they followed that derech until they came to a town. And these children entered into a house and the Balabayas, the owner of the house, had pity and compassion upon them and they gave them bread. And they continued into another house and there too they gave them bread. And so these children kept on going around from house to house and they saw that things were good for them in their destitution, in their impoverishment, in their lostness in their bewilderment, in their confusion and in their anxiety, they found that we can get by with this. We can get by with this begging. And these two children decided between themselves that they should always be together. And they made themselves large sacks, large bags, and then it went around to the houses and to every happy occasion, to every simcha in the world, to the brisim and to the weddings. And they continued further along going to cities and to different houses. And they went to market fairs. And they would sit among the beggars of the world in the same way that people sat together in the town. To the point that these children, these two children who were lost in the forest, orphaned in the forest, who were saved by these enigmatic and hidden, concealed creatures of the night, these seven beggars. They became famous along all the other beggars. For all of them recognized them and knew of them. They knew that these were the children who had been lost in the forest, as mentioned. What we see here, parenthetically speaking, is perhaps the capacity to adjust ourselves, to find within catastrophe, within loss of hope, within the abandonment of reason, a certain structure. Was the begging what the children wanted to do prior to that which happened, prior to the catastrophe which sent the country running into the forest? Probably not. Yet nevertheless, they dealt with their circumstances. They operated as they were, as creatures of the night, as creatures of the forest. And they found the possibility of joy there as well. The possibility of sustenance, specifically in the space of destitution. The promise of maintaining joy, even as one falls away from Malchus. Of maintaining faith, even when one is cast away from power. To find a hidden strength, within the abiding presence of powerlessness. As if to say the acknowledgement of their powerlessness, of their inability to do for themselves, was in and of itself the true strength that they needed to disclose. To recognize that that I am impoverished and destitute, as David Amelech, Malka Mashiach, Schuster Genelenu says, 
Dalva ani ani. I am impoverished and I am destitute, but I am still ani. I am still myself with an aleph. And everybody knew in the world of the beggars, in the world of those creatures who didn't function in the light of day, those creatures, those individuals, that time period, that generation that couldn't find the comfort of the sun, but were forced to live in the luminescence of the moon. They all knew these two children and they all said, these are the children who were lost in the forest. One time, Rabbi Nachman continues, he says, there was a big fair in a big city. Again, very nondescript. Almost as if that each of us are meant to apply these stories to our own circumstances. And all the beggars went there, as well as these two children who became popular beggars. It came to the mind of the beggar community that they should arrange a marriage between these two children, between the lost boy and the lost girl, that they should marry each other. And as soon as they started discussing it, it pleased everybody. It was a wonderful suggestion, a good etza. And they got matched. And there was a shidduch. There was a connection within disconnection. There was a promise of yichud within pirud. There was the promise of completion within disparity. Or, as Rabbi Nachman announced at the beginning, a promise of joy within brokenness, of simcha mitaycha marashchayra. But the beggars, the destitute, they asked themselves a very good question. How are we supposed to make a wedding? So they came to a decision amongst themselves. And as much as on such and such a day, the king is going to have a big birthday feast, all of the beggars are going to go there. And from the leftovers that we request for ourselves, the meat and the bread, they would make a wedding. And so it was. All of the beggars went to the town and they requested out for themselves bread and meat. And they also collected the leftovers. They also collected the psyles, that which remained after the banquet, the meat and the bread. And the beggars went ahead and they dug out a big trench and a pit in the mud, which could contain a hundred people. And they covered that pit that they dug in the mud with sticks, with mud, and with trash. And they all went inside it. And the marriage of these two children, these two lost children, took place within this pit, dug into the mud, covered with trash and branches. And they set up a chuppah there, and they were very, very happy there. Or in the language of Rabbi Nachman's Hebrew, hayu me'oid me'oid smechim. Again, that me'oid me'oid that we saw in Torah Memches from Lukut Maharan, the second volume, koil ha'olam kulo hu gesher tsar me'od me'od, a doubled me'od. An intensity of darkness doubled over itself. A pit dug into the mud. And they were capable of being very, very joyous there. And the bride and the groom were also extremely happy. And the bride and the groom at this moment of happiness, they started remembering, they started recalling the kindness that Hashem Yisbarach had done for them when they were in the forest, when they were lost and destitute in the forest, and when they started crying and yearning 
And at the moment of their happiness, buried in the mud, covered in trash, amongst the beggars that married them, they started asking, how can it be that the first beggar, the blind beggar, the one who brought us here, the one who brought us bread in the forest, how can he come here? How can we get him here? This ends the second stage of the narrative structure of the story of the seven beggars. Because as we're going to see, any wedding has sheva brachos. And each of those seven beggars that visited these lost children in the despondency and the impoverishment in the lostness of the forest, in the heart of darkness, they arrive at the sheva brachos allowing their promise that you should be like me to culminate, as we're going to see in each of the next shirim that we give. Each beggar and their promise that you should be like me is explained. But what's important for us right now, at least at this stage in the story, is to be aware that there is a joy that is building. There is a simcha, there is a nisuyin, there is a yichud not only between two opposites, between the male and the female child, but between two destitute opposites, two opposites that are lost, that should practically have no hope. Yet nevertheless, in the trenches of hopelessness, they're visited by the prophets who exist in hopelessness, and they uncover the hope that animates everything in the world the hope of the beggars themselves, the desire and the yearning for something that is not here yet, the desire and the yearning for something that stands just at the horizon to arrive into each and every one of our personal lives to offer us the comfort that we so desire and that we so seek. But before we can receive the gifts of the beggars, before the lost child, the lost boy, and the lost girl can receive the gifts, can receive the sheva brachos, the seven blessings that these beggars have to offer, they have to remember where they were, the lostness, living in the heart of darkness, the bewilderment, the confusion, the bahala, the bilbul, because it's specifically through all of those situations that create the space of the Nisuyan, the marriage of the lost. The name of the Sefer that Rav Yair Dreyfus Shlita put out on this very story. The marriage of the lost. Almost as if to say that the tale of the seven beggars is coming to show us not only how to get married, not only how to unify things, not only how to connect disparate entities in our lives, not only how to see how two polar opposites of chaos and order, of hopelessness and hope, of faith and heresy, of excitement and despondency, of joy and sadness, how they can unite together, but rather the very place that they unite together, the very place that this Nisun takes place, is in the pit dug into the mud entrenching ourselves in that which is, and covering ourselves with what? With garbage. 
with what is present in our lives, not demanding that circumstances be different, but rather the willingness to take the circumstances with which we find ourselves, the twigs and the dirt and the mud that cover us over in the pit that is dug into the mud, and to embrace the nisuyin, the marriage, the yichud, the hope, the emergence of the gifts of these seven beggars that takes place specifically after being lost in a forest, specifically in the destitution and the lostness that we find ourselves in, buried deep within the mud and covered in trash. And Be'ezra Sashem, over the next few weeks or however long it takes us, we're going to encounter, we're going to meet the beggars. And we're going to find very quickly that these creatures that appeared to be deficient, these creatures that appeared to be lacking, these creatures who offered us gifts and then ran away from us, saying that, no, 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 you should just be like me, have in truth been with us all along, have in truth been waiting for us to desire them all along. And it's the desire itself, the yearning itself, the melancholic desire for that which is not present that offers us their gifts. And then in the next class on Monday night, Besos Hashem, we're going to be introduced to the blind beggar. The blind beggar who said, you can't come with me, but I'm blessing that you should be old, as old as me. And we're going to see, Besos Hashem, what it means to be old. What it means to live beyond time. And Bezra Sashem, in entering into the narrative, will allow ourselves to also uncover the gifts of the seven beggars in our own lives. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.